Norman Centuries, Episode 19. Bowman, Part 2. Bowman in the East. Welcome back. Last time we followed the early career of Bowman de Houtville as he tried to carve out a place for himself in southern Italy. This proved impossible, as his uncle and stepbrother conspired to frustrate him at every turn. The coming of the First Crusade was therefore a welcome relief, the perfect vehicle to ride to eastern glory. Today we tend to think of the Crusades as if they were single armies, or single waves of armies, launching themselves in a certain year. In fact, they were more like continuous movements, not armies as much as armed men moving in ebbs and flows to the east. There was no single route they chose to get there and no single recognized leader, just a vague agreement of the leading princes to gather at Constantinople. The lack of an overall commander meant almost certain bickering and disorganization, but Bowman correctly saw it also as a golden opportunity. Of all the princes, he was by far the most experienced and ambitious. If a general commander was needed, and it almost certainly would be, he was the natural candidate. Always with an eye to the future, he was careful to act the part of dignified statesman. While the forces led by other princes behaved with reckless abandon, pillaging their way across Byzantine territory and frequently skirmishing with their imperial escorts, Bohemond was an example of order and decorum. Everything had been carefully prepared beforehand. Together with his nephew Tancred and a small but very well-trained army, Bohemond set sail from the Italian town of Bari and landed his men at various points on the Dalmatian coast in order not to overwhelm local food supplies. He had taken the precaution of forbidding looting on pain of death to prevent the ill will that usually accompanied a march through foreign territory. The route he chose must have been a difficult one. 1,200 meters above sea level through the passes of the Pindus Mountains in the early winter, but his planning was such that he made it without incident into western Macedonia by Christmas. From there he traveled along the Via Ignatia, the same road which a decade before he had marched on with his father in their failed bid to conquer Constantinople. This time, of course, he was on his best behavior, scrupulously maintaining cordial relations with the imperial guard, which was sent to keep tabs on his progress. At Epirus, he sent a messenger to Constantinople asking for an audience with the Emperor Alexius. He wasn't the first crusader prince to reach the imperial city, and he was anxious to see what the other western leaders had agreed to. Most of all, he wanted to make sure that none of his rivals had received special treatment from the emperor. Western knights tended to assume that the Byzantines were soft and weak, but Bohemond knew better than any how powerful the empire still was. It was by far the most significant Christian player in the Near East, and without its support, no permanent success could be achieved. Friendship would also have other benefits. A special recognition from Alexius would put Bohemond in control of all crusader dealings with the empire. He would be the pivotal figure of the Grand Christian Alliance and the de facto leader of the crusade. The treatment he received when he reached Constantinople was encouraging. After a stay of only a single night in the monastery of Saints Cosmos and Damien, he was given a special escort to the imperial palace, in honor accorded to no other Westerner. There he was showered with gifts and impressive-sounding, though empty, titles, and admitted into the emperor's presence. Once there, standing before the immense imperial throne, complete with golden lions that would stand up and roar at the touch of a lever. He was asked to take an oath of fealty to Alexius and promised to return any land he conquered to the empire. He gave it without a moment's hesitation and asked smoothly to be named Grand Domestic of the East, 
the commander-in-chief of all imperial forces in Asia. Bohemond had played his part to perfection, but the Emperor Alexius was too perceptive to be taken in by the Norman. Outwardly, he gave every sign of embracing Bohemond, but he didn't trust him an inch, and he had no intention of increasing his already dangerous power. He had hoped to pawn off Bohemond with expensive gifts, and was now slightly embarrassed that Bohemond had asked so boldly for a title. So he stalled, saying that the time wasn't right to name him Grand Domestic yet, but vaguely hinting that he could earn it with a show of energy and loyalty. That was the best that Bohemond could get, and he knew it, so with a few parting pleasantries, and a promise by the emperor to send troops and food with him, Bohemond withdrew and rejoined his army. They were ferried across the Bosphorus, and marched to Nicaea where their main crusader army was already investing the city. Thanks to his timely arrival, and the much-needed supplies, Bohemond saw an immediate surge in his popularity with the rank and file. This was increased when he defeated a Turkish relieving army, triumphantly binding the captives with the very ropes they had brought to tie up the crusaders. Bohemond's run of good luck continued with the fall of Nicaea. Relations with Byzantium plummeted when the Turks decided to surrender to the Byzantine contingent, who slipped into the city at night and refused to let the crusaders enter to engage in the traditional three days of pillaging. Under the circumstances, Bohemond's failure to get Alexius' endorsement was now, if anything, a badge of honor. When the army decided to move on in the direction of Antioch, Bohemond suggested that they split in half in order to make it easier to find supplies. He accompanied the advance group, while his main competitor, Raymond of Toulouse, the only other crusader of comparable standing, took control of the second wing traveling a day behind. Near the town of Dorleum, Bohemond was ambushed, but thanks to his quick thinking, disaster was averted. The knights dismounted and formed a protective ring around the non-combatants, who were tasked with bringing water to the front lines. Meanwhile, a message was sent to Raymond to hurry, while the Turks, who mistakenly believed that they had trapped the entire army, repeatedly attacked. When Raymond suddenly appeared with a fresh group of knights, the Turks fled, leaving the treasury and household goods of their emir behind. The victory was credited to both commanders, and the entire army spent a welcome respite among the orchards and streams of the nearby old Byzantine city of Iconium. The Turks made one more attempt to stop them from crossing the Taurus Mountains, but this time Bohemond nearly defeated them himself, charging straight at their emir and engaging him in single combat. Unnerved, the Turks fled again, abandoning any further attempt to block the crusaders' path. That night, a comet flared in the sky, illuminating both the victory and Bohemond's stratospheric prestige. The Norman, as always sensing an opportunity, detached himself from the main army and went off to liberate several neighboring cities. These he discreetly turned over to the emperor as proof of his good faith and a subtle reminder that he was still available for appointment as Grand Domestic of the East. In his absence, a rumor reached the crusader camp that Antioch was unguarded, and Raymond of Toulouse, still smarting from Bowman's string of victories, quickly dispatched 500 men to occupy it in his name. Unfortunately for Raymond, the rumor turned out to be the opposite of the truth, as reinforcements were pouring into Antioch. His men arrived to find it virtually impregnable, an opinion which the rest of the army shared when they showed up several weeks later. Antioch was one of the great cities of the East, and had only been captured by Muslim forces twelve years before by treachery. 
The city spread three and a half square miles across a valley floor and was surrounded by walls built by Justinian more than 500 years before, complete with six major gates and studded with 400 towers. Inside the circuit of those walls rose Mount Silpius, at whose thousand-foot summit was a massive citadel. The mountainous terrain made approach from the south, east, or west difficult, while at the same time the sheer length of the walls made a siege virtually impossible. Bohemond had been looking for a suitable eastern capital for himself, and the moment he saw Antioch's magnificent defenses, he probably realized that he had found it. Of course he had taken an oath to liberate Jerusalem, but if he could install himself here, there was no need to go a step further. The Crusaders constructed three towers to invest the city and settle down for a siege, but they simply lacked the numbers to cut off the city completely. The Orontes River supplied it with fresh water, and foraging parties easily evaded Crusader patrols. Even worse, the Crusaders soon exhausted the surrounding food supply and were often ambushed by roving bands of defenders. With the winter came earthquakes and freezing snowstorms, while in the night sky the aurora borealis flashed, adding fear to the general gloom. Several desperate attempts to take the city failed miserably, and news arrived that an enormous Muslim relief army under the command of the terrible Kerboga of Mosul was on its way. By the spring, one in seven crusaders were dying of hunger, and mass defections began. Bohemond had long since come to the conclusion that Antioch was impossible to take by storm, and if force wasn't an option, then duplicity was clearly the key. Somehow he had made contact with a traitor inside the city who had agreed to surrender a tower he was responsible for. All that was left was for Bohemond to choose his moment, which he did with his typical panache. First, he had to get rid of any rival claims to the city. There was still a small Byzantine contingent with the army who were hoping to take control of Antioch once it was captured. Bohemond summoned their leader into his tent and hinted that there was a plan to murder him, which he had regrettably been unable to stamp out. Although false, this rumor was easy enough to believe, and the next day the man abruptly left with his retinue. Bohemond celebrated the success of his ruse by turning around and announcing that the Byzantines had left out of cowardice, abandoning them all to their fate. The Crusaders had, of course, given an oath that they would return Antioch to the empire, but now that could be safely ignored. Bohemond next announced that he was contemplating leaving because of pressing needs in Italy. His words had the appropriate effect. He had played a leading role in every military encounter, and the thought of losing him now, as Kerboga was closing in, terrified the army. The crusading princes, of course, sought for the bluster that it was, but they were powerless in the face of public opinion. When Bohemond then floated the idea that Antioch would be an acceptable compensation to any losses sustained at home, even Raymond of Toulouse had to bow to the inevitable. Only after they had agreed to give him the city did he confide that he had a contact on the inside and then told them his plan. The army would break camp and march out as if to confront the approaching Kerboga. Under cover of darkness, they would return and slip into the city through an unguarded window that the traitor would leave unlocked. Two hours before dawn, Bowman led 60 soldiers up a ladder and quickly took over the two nearby towers and the wall between. With the help of native Christians in the city, a gate was flung open and the army poured inside. By nightfall, there wasn't a Turk alive in the city. More than seven months after they had first arrived, Antioch was finally theirs.
The ordeal wasn't quite over, however. Although the city had fallen, the citadel was still in Turkish hands. Bowman had been wounded in the lone attempt to take it, and, far more seriously, Kerboga was on his way with an army 75,000 strong. The first problem was easy enough to deal with. Bowman built a wall around the citadel to prevent an attack from that quarter and turned his mind to the defense of his new city. He didn't have much time. Only two days later, Kerboga arrived. The Crusaders were in a desperate situation. The seven-month siege had depleted the city's food supplies, and there had been no time to restock them. The situation was so dire that some knights resorted to slaughtering their own horses for food. To make matters worse, deserters had made Kerboga aware of the situation. The moment he arrived, he attempted a ferocious assault against the section of the walls that Bowman was defending, and had only been beaten back with the greatest difficulty. He then settled back into a siege, knowing full well that the Crusaders couldn't last for long. Only a miracle could save the trapped Crusaders now, but fortunately for them, a miracle arrived. A French hermit named Peter Bartholomew claimed that a saint had appeared and revealed to him the sight of the Holy Lance, the spear that had been used to pierce Christ's side. Assisted by the hosts of heaven and led by this powerful relic, they could put Kerboga to flight. It's not likely that Bowman was convinced by this tale. After all, he had probably seen the original lance in Constantinople, but he knew the effect it would have on morale. And when Peter dramatically dug beneath the floor of the city's cathedral and found a rusted piece of metal, he was among the first to declare that it was real. He ordered five days of fasting and, leaving only 200 men in the city, he marched out behind a chaplain holding the lance for an all-out attack. The sight of the Crusader army was probably more pathetic than terrifying, with many of its knights stumbling along on foot. But despite that, Bowman's charge was well-timed. Kerboga may have gathered a massive army, but the alliance that was holding them together was crumbling. Most of the accompanying emirs mistrusted him and feared that success at Antioch would make him too powerful. When the Crusaders emerged from the city, they chose to desert. Kerboga's remaining forces still outnumbered the Crusaders, but they were unnerved by the size of the Crusader force, so they set fire to the grass between the armies to delay them. The winds, however, blew the smoke in the Turkish faces, and what had started as a tactical withdrawal turned into a rout. Armenian and Syrian herdsmen, seeing the chance for revenge for a decade of oppression, came down from the hills to join the slaughter. The victory was complete. The Turkish defenders of the citadel had watched the debacle unfold in front of them, and they knew that all hope was now lost. Much to Bowman's gratification, they announced that they would only surrender to him personally, sending one last snub to his old rival, Raymond of Toulouse, who was ill and had been forced to observe the entire thing from the sidelines. Raymond didn't take the news well. He dug in his heels, refusing to acknowledge Bowman as master of Antioch the entire crusade ground to a halt. There were more than just petty reasons for Raymond's stance. Like Bohemond, he wanted to be recognized as the supreme commander of the crusade, but he was also shrewd enough to realize that despite any personal distaste for the Byzantines, they were needed if the crusaders had any hope of long-term success, and giving Antioch, one of the empire's main cities, to Bohemond would permanently sever relations with Constantinople. The crusading princes were evenly split between Bohemond and Raymond, 
and they dithered for several months while a typhoid epidemic hit and morale, euphoric after the victory, once again sank. The rank and file didn't really care which of their leaders got control of Antioch. In fact, they hardly cared about Antioch at all. They had signed on to liberate Jerusalem, and the longer they stayed squabbling in Asia Minor, the angrier they became. Finally, with restlessness reaching the point of mutiny, Raymond and Bohemond came to a compromise. Bohemond would get Antioch, and in return, he and the other princes would recognize Raymond as the leader of the crusade. After 15 months in Antioch, the crusading army finally marched off, leaving a well-pleased Bohemond behind. It was his greatest moment of triumph. His aim in joining the crusade had never been to see Jerusalem. It had been to found his own state, and now he had one of the major cities of the Near East under his control. He was perfectly placed to dominate both the lucrative pilgrim trade of Jerusalem and the nearby crusader kingdoms that were being established. When he visited the newly captured Jerusalem a few months later, as the Prince of Antioch, he was received as the most powerful regional player, easily securing the election of his own candidate as patriarch. Unfortunately for Beaumont, this triumph was short-lived. The very boldness which had won him his wealth and power proved his undoing. In the summer of 1100, he left his nephew Tancred as regent of Antioch and marched north with only 300 men to campaign on the upper Euphrates. Blundering into an ambush, he was captured and thrown into a Turkish prison. The emperor Alexius offered to pay his ransom if he was delivered to Constantinople, but Bowman declined, and he was forced to spend three years as a captive until Tancred could raise the funds to free him. In his absence, Tancred had greatly increased the size of the principality, and Bohemond marched south to extend it further, only to be severely defeated. Antioch was now caught between the twin rocks of Saracen and Byzantine power, and its army was too depleted to hold, much less expand, in either direction. Only a massive infusion from Europe could salvage the situation, so in 1105, Bohemond left to drum up support for a new crusade. The effort was a dramatic success. In Italy, crowds arrived to greet him wherever he stayed, and in France, King Philip offered his daughter in marriage. He was widely seen as the hero of the First Crusade, and his popularity was such that the English king, Henry I, refused to let him land in England for fear of enlisting too many nobles to his cause. Despite his failure to actually help liberate Jerusalem, he was widely seen as the hero of the First Crusade, and his popularity was such that the English king Henry I refused to let him land in England for fear that he would enlist too many nobles to his cause. Dazzled by his celebrity status and finding an easy scapegoat for every misfortune in the Byzantines, who were widely viewed as duplicitous and backstabbing, Bohemond unwisely decided to revive his old dream of taking Constantinople's throne. With an army 35,000 strong, he invaded the Dalmatian coast for the third time and attacked Durus, the westernmost city of the empire. Unlike the previous two attempts, however, the Byzantines were now in the position of strength. While Alexius leisurely marched to confront the Normans, he convinced the Venetian navy to attack Bohemond's fleet, easily destroying it. He then studiously avoided a pitched battle, while plague and the depredations of a siege depleted Bohemond's strength. With his escape route cut off, and a series of disastrous skirmishes sapping morale, Bohemond was forced to conclude a humiliating truce. 
it amounted to an unconditional surrender. Although he was allowed to keep Antioch, it was only as Alexius's vassal. All captured Byzantine territory had to be returned, and a Greek patriarch of Alexius's choosing had to be installed in the city's cathedral. After a lifetime of struggle, which had seen such recent dizzying triumphs, this last setback was too much. Bohemond refused to even return to Antioch, setting sail for Sicily instead, where he died a broken man three years later. The body was taken to Canossa and interred in a simple mausoleum, and can still be seen today, with the single word Boamundus marking the spot. It was a pitiful end to a remarkable life, and with him perished a certain daring and energy from the Norman race. Thanks mostly to his successor, his nephew Tancred, the Principality of Antioch endured, but it would never again be the dominant player that Bohemond had envisioned. Join me next time as I conclude the story and look back on the impressive, if overlooked, Norman achievement. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.